Well, hello there once again, and welcome to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor, coming to you from my little studio in the centre of Stockholm to the 70 million Irish people or people of Irish heritage around the world. This is the podcast for you. Doesn't matter to me if you were born there, doesn't matter to me if you've only been to Temple Bar once, or if you kissed a Blarney Stone, if you feel Irish, if you are Irish, if you're interested in all things Irish. Irish and the extraordinary Irish people we have that live abroad, then you're in the right place, lads. I don't know if you've been following what's going on back home in terms of broadcasting, but it actually has a little bit to do with this podcast in its own way, and I'll tell you why in a second. So the public service broadcaster in Ireland is called RTE, Radio Television, and people love it or hate it, and a lot of the time they do both at the same time, right? It's a public service broadcaster, so it's there to promote our culture and democracy and sport and all those things, and it does some things very, very well. It also does some things very, very badly. And uh, over the last few days, there's been a variety of people from RTE who have been hauled before a Dáil committee, a parliamentary committee, an Iruchtas committee. So that's the Irish government, basically, uh, or not the government, really, but the, the Houses of Parliament bringing these lads in. Uh, before the committee to talk about payments. Now, there's a lad called Ryan Turbidy. You will have seen him, uh, or Turbidy, sorry. Uh, you will have seen him presenting various different radio and TV programmes. And he gets paid an awful lot of money. And people have been paid an awful lot of money in the past. But at a time when the organisation needed to make savings, there was deals made to ensure that they could keep paying vast amounts of money. And that would be grand if there wasn't other people all over RTE, lowly paid researchers, journalists, camera people, editors, and indeed freelancers like me good self, who weren't exactly living high in the hog at that time. So it's all coming out now, and there's all sorts of, oh, you know, corporate junkets and going to the Rugby World Cup and that kind of thing. And it's, it's a weird one, because public service broadcasting, you might know this if you live in Europe, right? Uh, but there's very little or no advertising on public service broadcasters in Scandinavia or on the BBC. You'll never get an ad break in a BBC programme on BBC One or BBC Radio 5. And in fact, um, a good few years ago, we had the Gales of the Stockholm Gales go on television here in Sweden. And they brought with them an O'Neill's size four football, right? So, you know, the, the Gaelic football we all grew up kicking. I'm sure you're kicking it now in Cambodia if you're playing with the lads down there uh, in the Khmer, Korja Khmer GAA club there. Or if you're in San Francisco, you're kicking a similar ball, right? Uh, so when the girls of the Gales went on SVT, which is the Swedish public service broadcaster, they actually got a big bit of uh, gaffer tape or, or duct tape, as it's also known, and stuck it over the logo because they didn't want to be given O'Neill's free advertising. Now, lads, I probably don't need to tell you, this is not O'Neill's biggest market. I'd say there's probably 50 O'Neill's football in the country, and it's not likely to grow anytime soon. But any sort of brand name or that, I know if I turn up to um, to do something on Swedish TV and I happen to have, like, you know, i say if I have a polo shirt with, you know, some sort of symbol on it, you know, the Ralph Lauren lad in the horse or whatever, uh, which, you know, I probably wouldn't do on the television, but there you go. But they would actually say, no, you can't wear that. So there's no no advertising at all allowed, you know. Now, RTE does both. It takes money from the taxpayer, money from the government, funding from there, and it's also in the advertising market, which to me is a bit of a disaster. But um, I hope it leads to a situation where RTE could be done, you know, take them all out of the adver- advertising market completely, because an awful lot of the problem with, you know, having big stars like Torbidi is that they do attract advertisers. But if there's no advertisers to attract, well, then the amount you have to pay them goes down, because all you want them to do is attract list you know, the audience loses its value and it's unlikely to be able to pay that, that much and hopefully, you know, spread spread the wealth around a little bit. If you want to spread the wealth to this podcast, lads, more than welcome. Uh, but patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm, right? Throw in a fiver a month because... 
Uh, I'm going to be working on this podcast now for the next year or two, we'll say. We'll give it a year or two because there's 70 million a year around the world and if only a, a tiny, tiny fraction of people decide to pay for it, it'll actually make it worth my while and it'll mean that I'll be able to continue to bring you these stories and to become even more ambitious in terms of coming to where you are and telling stories at live events or going around, you know, places like in Boot, Montana or in New York or in San Francisco or I would have loved to have gotten down to the Women's World Cup which will be starting in Australia. It doesn't look like I'm going to make that. But if this is the kind of podcast where we had like that tiny fraction of people who support via Patreon, I would have been able to do that without worrying about it because you know I can't. Uh, my wife would go mad if I keep investing money in podcasts for the Irish community rather than spending on it on her because she deserves it. So yeah, Patreon.com, our man in Stockholm is the way to go. Speaking of Australia, boys and girls, and the World Cup that's coming up there, this week's guest is a lad that I got to know when I was probably in about second third class back in Ireland, which may be the age of six or seven, we'll say. Uh, six, seven, eight, somewhere around there. And um, I got to know this chap. And then, you know, halfway through his second uh, secondary education or towards the, the end of his secondary education, he disappeared to Australia. And this is the great thing about social media. Now, I saw, I think social media can be a terrible sewer at, uh, at times. You know, if you look on Facebook or Twitter or that kind of thing, an awful lot of it can be nonsense and it can be very negative and very toxic and that kind of thing. But one thing it is undeniably good for is giving us a way to stalk each other and find the people that we went to school with and the girl that you first went out with and that kind of thing and see how she's doing now, you know. Don't ask her if she'll take you back, lads. She won't. She got rid of you for a reason, right? But on Twitter, uh, when it started, you know, back in, I think I've been on it since about two 2009 or so, uh, so 2009, 2010, fairly early stage stuff there. But it allowed me to reconnect with people like the man you're going to hear from today. And the man you're going to hear from today is Andrew McGarry. So Andrew is a journalist with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. His mother was a journalist with the Irish Press, right? So if you're over 50 and uh, you'll, you'll remember the Irish Press newspaper, went bust there towards the end of the 90s, I think. So he comes from a long line of journalists and from people who've worked in journalism. And despite his mammy telling him, don't go into journalism, son, he went and did it, right? But... Um, he lives down there in Australia now, and I kind of got in touch to talk to him about the World Cup, but the, the World Cup actually sort of formed the smallest part of our discussion, to the extent that I'm now looking for somebody else to talk about the Australian women's soccer team in greater depth ahead of the World Cup, because we will, of course, be covering all of Ireland's group opponents right here on the Global Gale. But for this week, let us kick back and relax. It's uh, If you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I suggest you make a cup of cocoa, an old hot whiskey, perhaps an Irish coffee, cup of tea, if you can find a, an old Barry's tea bag or a lion's tea bag knocking around there or a Tesco tea bag, tis all the one. So if you're down there, do that. If you're in the northern hemisphere, that's getting fairly warm up here, right? So you might want to take something cold out of the fridge and go out and uh, stick on the headphones if you're mowing the lawn or sit out in the balcony if you're living in an apartment and just chill out and kick back a little while and have a listen to this chat with a, a very old school friend of mine that I'm delighted I was able to reconnect with, who was able to tell me all about uh, travelling to Australia as a teenager and getting himself set up there. And lads, he has some tremendous yarns, not least around uh, the story of Australia's most infamous serial killing as well. Oh, be Jesus, the ears are cocked up now and all the boys want to listen. So I'm not going to stand away. Here he is, Andrew McGarry on the Global Gale podcast. In my lifetime of knowing you, you've had two different accents, right? Because one was when you were a kid who'd come up from Longford, and then uh, <coughs> later on in life you have an Australian accent. So could you just maybe go back a little bit over your story about how you moved to Dublin as a very young child? And we'll start there. <laughs> I vehemently deny I have an Australian accent. Thank you very much. Um, 
Okay, so I grew up in, in Longford, in Longford Town, and my mum was a journo, so, you know, hasn't fallen far from the tree. Uh, I went up, she got a job in Dublin when I was about seven or eight, and I went up to join her there. She was working on the Irish press, the evening press, as was, and um, and then things started to get a bit hairy for the paper and she started looking around and, and thought Australia looks like a, a good bet, uh, bet rather than rather than waiting around here. And sure enough, of a couple of years after we, we left in 1988, so I was 15, 16, um, and a couple of years later, I think the press group folded. So she was bang on. Um, and, uh, you know, being in the media is a, an interesting uh, live wire act, as you as you well know. Um, so I, I had finished um, fourth year in the Irish terms, year ten in the Australian terms, um, in high school, and then I we came to Australia, and I was all I was all set for you know two months summer holidays on on the beaches in in. Uh, in Sydney, and um, unfortunately, the the um, Australian school year is us about. So, uh, I was back into school within a couple of weeks, and I was not a happy camper. What um, an introduction to Australian society, all the same. Oh no! Hang on! Hang on! Hang on! We had to, we had to, we had to a quick a quick step back. Um, I nearly didn't survive getting out of the airport. Um, we it was it was a torrential rain in Sydney the night we landed, and we dumped our most of our bags at the airport and then got in this in, in a cab to um, to go to Manly in, in Sydney where we were staying for the night, and I say driving rain we got we got this long cab to get all our stuff in, and Mum got in the front the front passenger side, and I got in the the, the seat behind the driver. He heard her door shut and thought that was good enough for him and started off with me half in, half out. <laughs> Luckily, my mum has a exceedingly sharp um, scream when when she, when, it, when it needs me, and he he came to a sudden stop. Otherwise, um, I I might have been um, hop along Cassidy, as they say over here. It's not not the greatest welcome I've ever heard to a new country, mate. No, no, no it was uh, it was interesting. Um, but so I, I ended up in, in, in school here in Sydney and was lucky enough to have a, um, was given a buddy uh, by the four master. And um, he, I got accepted into his friendship group and they're still my closest mates in Australia 35 years later. So Jesus, that's that pretty good pretty all the well. same. You just sort of wander into a ready-made bunch of lads and they go, okay, right, here you yep. go, Andrew, you're with these boys now. And they looked after you, they had no problem. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I mean, they gave me shit, of course, but you know, it, it was, uh, um, it wasn't them I really had to look out for. It was just the general vibe of the place, and, and, and hence the accent, if you will, that you think you hear, and that I deny. Um, it's very mild. It's very mild. I the have most, to say. the most, the most common thing said to me uh, in my first eighteen months in Australia was, "What's twenty nine plus four, Paddy?" Twenty three. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm not going to say it. Um, and then the second most common thing said to me in my time at school there was, because obviously I was from Ireland and therefore I must be a member of the IRA. There you go. That well, I would have thought that would bring you a certain level of respect or something, no? No, no. Far, far from it. No. 
And so when... I made the I made the tactical decision to uh, flatten out the accent and and be tr- try and fit in a little bit more. Um, mm. My mum, who was I don't know she was thirty five or so when she arrived, she still sounds like she walked off the plane. Um, but I obviously have a more transatlantic um, approach. Yes, a more BBC neutral sort of a approach to things. There, you know. <laughs> well, no, no, they they'd be they'd be much happier with with the with the regional accent than than uh, than over here. Good lord, no, it's just all it's all one. Except if you're from Queensland, that's a bit different. Do they speak that's differently there? Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, interesting variations up here. Yeah. That's it. it's like Kerry people. I got uh, I got a really angry text message off a person one day because I sort of said that Kerry people didn't speak English, and uh, you know, like the, the, the difficulty there is learning the language. And a guy went absolutely mad at me, and I have to say it was probably fair. I was a little bit harsh on them, you know. Um, how did it go for your mum? Because I remember when she worked for the Irish Press, she had a very good job there. But as you said, they were getting into financial difficulties, and she saw the writing on the wall and got out. Did she continue in journalism when she got down to Australia? Was it easy? for her yeah uh well i wouldn't say it was easy i mean it, it's media is difficult everywhere and has got progressively worse over the last few decades um but she got she was lucky enough that she had interview with um they had the sun herald newspaper over here it was like sydney's main sunday or one of their two main sunday papers and um the editor um met her and gave her a job and the next day the editor was fired and so she still turned up and, and they just went just just sit over there it was fine and uh and um she had so she, she was at, at, at fairfax which was the other main news group over there and i ended up as a um uh, i went to uni and then i i had a um she saw the one ad. I couldn't get a job at the time. Of, you know, waster. Whatever. Um, but uh, I, uh, she saw the one ad for Copy Kids, Office Gophers, which was how you got into the business back then. And so um, I was one of 3,000 that put the letter in and they called 300 of us back to do an exam and they took, uh, what was it, 30 of us for interview and they took about, 10 or 15, 15 of us became joined the copy kid ranks and then you were fighting for a cadetship at that point and so i got about six seven months later i got a cadetship on the australian newspaper was sort of the national broadsheet over there but so, so that, that was murdoch so mm. that was that was 15 years of my life was working for for murdoch over here um and it wasn't i mean it it was it it wasn't the same the whole way through it got a lot different slash more negative towards the end mm. but uh but it was an amazing education yeah and i, I, I was there i was there for i was there for literally being you know doing as a copy kid where you literally had sub sub editors screaming copy and you ran out and they and and they and you put picked up a piece of paper off the off the, the desk and took it to the stone where the where the the compositors cut it up for the pages hmm. and um, and they literally printed the newspapers in the building and the yeah. building would shake at edition time so you know it was i was very lucky and privileged in that way to have seen that and to be still doing it three decades later when i'm doing online and 
not trying to trying to work my way around four or five bits of technology a day you know and yeah it's it's a completely different world now from, you know, the, the was it Burkey that the Irish press was and you, when your mum worked yeah. there, I knew one of the printers who worked there as well, a neighbour of ours, and it was just completely different because you had your deadline and if you missed that edition, well, there wasn't going to be another edition for an hour or two hours or four hours or whatever it was, you know, and it was a totally different way of doing things because I saw a couple of newspapers there, there was the recent sort of coup attempt or whatever you'd call it in Russia. And the newspapers came out with stuff that was written on whatever Friday night. And of course, by Saturday morning, it was completely out of date. And that hasn't happened in so long that sort of world events have moved that quickly, you know. Um, were you sort of convinced from a young age that you wanted to follow your mum into journalism? And if so, you know, like, you know, despite everything that you saw, her having to leave the country because the market was so bad and that kind of thing, why on earth did you do it? <laughs> well, okay, first a piece of evidence one i used to use when i was about four or five i used to sit at, at use my mum's typewriter which was had been my grandfather's typewriter i think had been his father's typewriter even and um put little bits of paper in and I, I used to read the paper on an early basis and so i used to type out headlines from the paper on a, on a small little sheet of paper and with the headline the daily andrew so if you take that as an example, probably I never had much choice in the matter. Yeah. But um, she, my mum, my I could not have said that I didn't walk into it eyes wide open. She was always saying, for God's sake, don't go into journalism. The pay's crap and they don't treat you that great. But, you know, but the point is that um, I thought I was just getting a job, yeah. you know, when I got the copy kid job. But then as soon as I walked into a newsroom, an active newsroom, I just went, nah, this is what I want to do. Mm. It's just the feeling of being part of a, of a, of a real newsroom where, where something's happening. Um, it's electric. And that much hasn't really changed, even though the, the medium has. Mm. So I still, three decades on, I still love it. It's that buzz when you go in there, isn't it? Because and it's every day. It's something different, and it can be sports, it can be business, politics, elections, war. Doesn't matter. But every day you walk in there, there's something going on. There's no day with no news, right? Yes, that that's that's fair. I have I I, I can't remember many boring, many quiet days um, in 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 that time in journalism and. They're, they're even less so now because it, everything's sped up so much that you there is no time to be quiet. You just look at, if you're not doing what's next, you're looking for what's next. Literally minutes before we started this conversation, I was writing up an interview with a boxer <laughs> that I had to throw off to somebody <laughs> before I spoke to you. And when this is done, I'll be sort of straight on to the next thing. And um, when you went in there, you went in as one of the copy kids, right? And they were, you know, an essential part of the machinery when when it was actual newspapers. Then you got on to, into your cadetship and then you started to report as well. I know that you work a lot with sports now and that that's your thing, but you were also uh, one of the main reporters on one of the most bizarre murder cases in Australian history and you've also written a book about it could you just explain a little bit about how you came to cover that case and what what it was about well I always say that that what probably led to me being on that was I was off the day it all broke so I wasn't the I wasn't the poor schmo who went up to do the the, the breaking story 
but I was the one on a couple of days later on the Sunday when the police um, opened up the the bank and let us in and did press conferences. And so from then on, it was just me. So basically the story is it's known variously as the Snowtown murders or the Bodies and Barrels murders, um, and it's Australia's worst serial killings. Um, there were 12 bodies, uh, 11 confirmed murders. They couldn't agree on a 12th in all the trials. Um, and it was a murder gang. There was like four, three or four people involved. One person was, was convicted of, of assisting offenders, wasn't convicted of any murders, but the other three were. Um, and there were murders that went, <clears throat> it was in South Australia, where I was at the time, um, working for the Australian. And uh, it basically, all these missing cases, they suddenly turned up. The police went to a disused bank um, in Snowtown, which is this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, about two and a half hours uh, out of Adelaide. And um, they finally tracked, they knew they were looking for something and they went in there and they found all these barrels with human Mm. remains in them. And they had to work. It took a while to work out how many bodies were there, and there was also two more buried in in the backyard of a suburban house in nor- in the northern suburbs. And then there were two other um, bodies that were found separate in different incidents. Mm-hmm. So I think I spent. I worked out that I spent between the main trial took eleven months, and that was the longest criminal trial in Austra- in, in South Australian history. Um, but all the all the, the the appeals and the retrials and the um, the bits and pieces there, I, I've figured out that I spent at least the equivalent of Monday to Friday, nine to five, for two years of my life, just on that one case. And then on top of that, there was the writing the book, and then doing um, docu- working on documentaries on it, and um, they subsequently there was a movie made about it. Which I mean, I, they just used my book. They didn't. I didn't. Well, I had no hand in the script, but um, it just it has. It's been twenty odd years. I mean, it was nineteen ninety nine, May nineteen ninety nine, that everything blew up. Everything was discovered, mm. um, and I'm still getting calls about it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And all I can say, I can, I can say one thing. Take note of high school English, because I knew I, I what you call it. I, I had a particularly uh, volatile relationship with high school English, and my high school teacher in in Australia we used to clash on stuff, and he used to be, you know, pounding out poetry and all these different books and things that I thought used to hope were crap. But the one thing that it did gauge with me was we did 1984, and uh, at one point. Um, in one of the um, uh, the discussions after one of the convictions, um, the argument from the the council was they they uh, were trying to deflect away from their client in favour of the main guy John Bunting, and they they described this bit of um, writing that had been found on a bit of paper in his handwriting in in a, in a stored storage container, and I thought, hang on, that sounds familiar, and then I went back and looked at the book and it was from 1984 and it turned out there were a few um, elements that were very similar if they were if they were coincidences they were very very interesting coincidences mm. um, 
between the two. So, so part of the defence was basically based on things that were in 1984 and that somebody looked and went, oh, I'm going to nick that and put it, put it before the court, so to speak. <clears throat> well, no, this, this, was, this, this was a piece of evidence that wasn't led in the trial, but they, they, were, um, they were saying this was found in the main guy's handwriting in his storage container. Yeah. And it was talking about, it, it's basically when the, when, the, when the Thor police come for you and, and, you, and oh, take right. you away. And, and before that, there was the um, uh, the breaking of bones and the whatever, whatever is, and the screaming on the floor and begging for mercy sort of thing, which was, you know, not too far removed from what actually happened. Mm. Um, and um, and so I thought, hang on, that does sound awfully familiar to me. They mm. said they had no that no one had any idea where it came from, and um, but thank thank God for high school English is all I could say. Exactly. So I ended up writing yeah. about. For the for the twenty, well the twentieth anniversary, so twenty nineteen, um, I wrote a story finally, a full story for, for ABC online about the links, mm. and that was the last. That was the, I think the last story I'll ever do on Snowtown. But I was I was just glad to get it out. The full my full thesis on what had happened. I tell, well, never say never because you know when you become attached to a case like that, people making new documentaries and writing new books will always look you up. You know, and um, when you're working on a on a story like that for so long, right? Did that affect you in any way? Did, like, I mean, do you start to feel empathy for the victims? Do you start to feel like you understand the perpetrators? Does it start to sort of seep into your everyday life? Um, that's a that's a, a, a very interesting set of statements i would agree with some of that i would not agree with others um i suppose i felt some vague empathy for the youngest killer whose stepdad was the ringleader um who like the whole thing it's it's too way too complex to go into but basically there was a lot of abuse sexual abuse involved or they didn't the, the, the ringleader didn't really differentiate between gays and pedophiles hmm. but there were a number of people that he attracted he brought in dragged into his circle who had been abused and he used that anger from them and targeted towards other people to join in hmm. things that happened so the youngest one um dragged into it and never really had much of a chance however he was part of he agreed to he pled guilty to four murders so you know it's you can't you can't knock it away he's still he's still in jail they're all still in jail um but i he would be the one that, that i felt some element of empathy for the rest of not really mm. um victims obviously i mean it was just horrendous it was a horrendous case but i suppose that I, I, as a journalist from that side of things, the thing that made me most relieved, I suppose, was the fact that um, the Bali bombings had happened the year before yeah. during this whole process. And a number of journ- Aussie journal- journalists went over to Bali and were really, really badly affected emotionally by what they saw there. Mm. And the media, which had traditionally been the stiff upper lip, oh, just go and have a drink if you don't, if you, you know, forget about it, you know, move on. Um, when I was 
lying in bed at night and, and seeing evidence go through my head and recollections of what I'd seen and heard and smelled and whatever, um, I said, I need to talk to someone. And thankfully, at that point, they were sufficiently alert to the problems that they said, okay, fine. Hmm. Didn't argue. I saw a counsellor. It helped. Um, but it, it's, you know, anyone who does that sort of a job, anyone who does court reporting, either officially for the court or as a reporter or a media person or a, a police person, I mean, mo most of the Snowtown detectives um, left the force on... Um, um, what do you call it? Trauma leave, essentially. Yeah, they yeah. Were just they, they'd had enough. Um, that those sort of things stay with you. So yeah. thankfully, I do, I have to think about it now. There was a time when I just had it, just instantly recall the slightest detail about it. Um, now I have to think about it, and that's a, I think a much better place to be. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's nice that it sort of doesn't haunt you day to day because you know there's certain things when I think back on them, you know, and I think of. There was a guy who drove uh, a truck into a department store here in Sweden, and I remember going through the um, the pictures that was being sent from eyewitnesses and video that was sent. I was actually one professional photographer who videoed what happened, and there was a child killed in the incident. And like you now, it's kind of receded a little bit in the memory. But when I pull it out there, it's still it's still there. You know, that's and it's it doesn't get any less horrible as time goes on. Um, to, to change tack, you were always a huge sports fan and a huge fan of Liverpool Football Club, you know, for your sins. Yes. And now you're, am I right in saying that you're working pretty much only with sport for ABC, you know, the odd Snowtown th thing, you know, with, on the 20th anniversary aside? Well, well I, 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 I have a dual call, calling card. I'm nine-tenths of the year, I'm, I'm a, a sports reporter. And the most important part of the year, I'm, I'm ABC's Eurovision blogger. Let, uh, let, so, let the record show. How could I possibly forget? Because it was only a few weeks ago since you were blogging away there for the Eurovision. I tell you what, let's skip the sport for the time being. How on earth did you get the job as the Eurovision correspondent? Because it is like, you know, one of Australia's national pastimes by now. Well, the thing was, when, when we started doing it, it was 20... I think they'd started doing it in 2013 or 2014, and it wasn't me, it was other people. And then they realised, oh, okay, this guy knows a bit about it because I'd watched it every year since you know it was about 40 years it's more than 40 years now it's like 79 i think was the first one that i watched yeah, you're also irish uh, and we watched... are the best at this thing historically yeah so well you know it's it, there's not that many international competitions that ireland has a chance of winning on a regular basis <laughs> we don't have a chance anymore no one votes for us we're now in the, in the same basket as the uk it's all right we've, we've moved on and now now you guys um, if, if you call me the australian accent i can claim you were Swedish so fair enough mob, I'll give you that your mob have won seven times now the same as Ireland so um, you know just don't win an eighth all right. No, no, no. I'll be doing everything to stop that when it happens next year. You know what? What is it about it that, that appeals to you, Andrew? Because you know, and we often say that the last thing that you're vision about is the music. But is it the music in your case that you think is sort of motivated that? Yeah. Well, you? I mean, the, the, I always loved the music. Hmm. Even when it was naff, it's not as naff now. There have been times when it has been absolutely just gorgeous, like in the in the seventies. But just the bit before I got into it was really amazing. Mm -hmm. Then it kind of started going a bit skew if in the eighties and nineties and what have you. It has started coming back to it because people, the the technology, 
the, the producers, the people, even if even if the stars aren't there anymore, if it's not the Celine Dion's and Abba's and Julio Iglesias's and Cliff Richards and whatever, <clears throat> there's still some really good people doing like the Aussies who did who did this year um, a sort of progressive metal band that sort of mixed synths and guitars and metal growls and the whole nine yards and their song was brilliant mm. it was a brilliant musical composition they were also they've been doing this thing for 20 odd they've been gigging for 20 odd years so they were able to perform live and not have any issues yeah. <coughs> so that was no i i i love the i love the music but i've also always loved the voting i'm an election man i'm an election you should have known this for me before anything else i was an election freak from way back i watched my first um irish election when i was about five oops hang on we have a we have a new arrival in the house who's who's making his 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 presence felt there in the background um always good with the puppies yes but i mean i what you call it i um i was watching election coverage in ireland when i was knee high to a grasshopper and i haven't stopped Mm. so elections plus music plus extravaganza um it's just it's awesome it's the best fun it's a winning formula right now and so you know being able to um being able to what you call to jump on and and have a blog that two hundred fifty thousand people are are watching or whatever on a on a a, a, a ridiculous o'clock on a sunday morning in australia it's it's great stuff. <laughs> it's an amazing niche you've carved out for yourself between, you know, the worst serial yes, I know. murders. Serial, serial killings, sport, Eurovision, karaoke. That, that's that's, that's <laughs> me in the four. You nailed on at the end. Uh, we look at the sports, Andrew, right? Because obviously you came from Ireland. You know, we didn't do, we did a little bit of rugby, not that much Chris, uh, uh, cricket, no Australia rules football at all. Did you grow to, to love those sports and, and learn about those sports in growing up, like in your final years in school there in Australia? Well, even before then, I mean, I, I um, so... Are, are we acknowledging, are we acknowledging the, uh, the... Uh, the uh, the old school tie here that, that that we both went to school together, but oh yes, that was in primary in primary school. Yeah, uh, in secondary school, um, I went to Belvedere in town, and they that's where I learned cricket. I mean, mm. I'd already wa- I was already watching, I, mean, I was watching any sport that moved basically that was on TV um, mm. um, as a young kid. But so um, yeah, I learned to play cricket. Um, not very well, uh, but um, and when I came out to Australia, it was a very interesting uh, introduction, you know. But um, yeah, so I, I I got to learn and love cricket. Um, we used to watch. I mean, by the time I was in in high school, we'd be watching. I would be watching American football. Um, I'd be watching. They'd have an hour of highlights um, of Aussie Rules on Channel Four, and also on, I think on on RTE used to have it as well. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, you'd see League on BBC. So in all and, and Union, obviously, you'd see, um, back then it was four nations, but you know, six nations now, yeah. and World Cups and what have you. So I was already well adjusted there. In fact, what strikes me about Australia is that it's so compartmentalized that depending what state you come from, you will barrack for 
or be interested in or play a totally different sport. Mm. So league rugby league is mainly Sydney and Brisbane, New South Wales and Queensland. Mm. Um, Union, bit of Sydney, bit of Queensland, bit of... Uh, I mean, there are, there are teams in, in different states now, so there has been some slight expansion. That's a kind of... A, Union is a more a minor game in the scheme of things. Um, Aussie rules is... Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania. So, like, depending where you grow up, the just the the, the like, in, in, at least in Ireland, you would learn about most of the codes and mm. you would have a fair mm. idea. Yeah. But lots of the people here would, depending where they came from, would just have no clue at all. Uh, when I got here, so that's that's how I got part of my start. I started covering when I was there as a, a, a news reporter in Adelaide, and the Adelaide Rams was the local rugby league team in the national competition and no one else in the Bureau knew rugby league mm. because it was South Australia and that's an Aussie rules state. Mm. So I got to, I got to cover it and that was part of how I slowly got my way into, um, into sport. I mean, mm. then obviously I went into, I, I covered the Olympics and the Paralympics in Sydney and, and then later got, was made a, a specific sports reporter for the Oz and then later on down the track, a dedicated sports reporter for ABC. But it just, it takes a while. Mm. I think I'm just, I'm glad I had a well-rounded sporting knowledge that was more than just one or two sports. Yeah. What, was that really the... that thing, yeah, was that the objective, Andrew? Because, like, you know, if you would have told us when we were in primary school that, okay, you two guys can work with sport for the rest of your lives, here we were, woohoo, that'll do us kind of thing, you know? And when you get into this, then you sort of, you know, you hope that that's what you're going to get to do. Was that the sort of the end game for you? You were going, okay, I want to get to, to the sports desk. Um, well, I mean, the two loves, if you like, were sport and politics hmm. covering or being somewhere connected with. Um, and I did both. I did, <clears throat> I did politics as a reporter. Um, I went to the dark side briefly and was a, um, um, a media advisor to a, a senator in federal parliament from South Australia um, after I left the newspaper. Um, and that was a that was enlightening. <laughs> Just the sheer <laughs> the sheer. There's, there's, there's a phrase by the uh, one of the former Australian Prime Ministers, Kevin Rudd, who said you can measure political staffers' years in dog years. Mm. And now I did about 18 months or so <coughs> in that job. And so I reckon, yeah, that was a good decade. You just racked <laughs> so up the years like, doing these things, yeah? I was completely exhausted by the end of it. Yeah. But so I, I, I was always keen to, and I, I'm, I'm very glad that I saw politics from both sides of it. Mm. And I'm glad that I, but I'm very much glad that I'm into sport. That has been probably my longest love, yeah. and um, and to be able to do that is is quite spectacular. Yeah, you don't miss the political aspect of it at all. You can follow the elections and all that kind of thing without having a a, a dog in the in the fight, so to speak. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's it, it's just it's it's too. <clears throat> you have to have a lot of bandwidth mental bandwidth mm. to deal with that you're just getting bombarded from all sides we never no matter which side of it you're on mm. as a as a reporter or as a as an advice as a advisor slash media person you just having to deal with you, you you hardly ever sleep you're just 
constantly monitoring to find out what's next. It's just, it's not a lot of fun yeah. when you get that close to it. Yeah. Um, and so, but the sport, you know, I've, I've got to, um, I've got to be at Olympic games at the Paralympic games. I've gone and, um, covered AFL grand finals and been in the, in the stadium for that. And I've, I've had a lot of really quite amazing opportunities through being a reporter. Um, mm. and that I think has been a lot more fulfilling in the long run mm. and a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, just... I just, I just enjoy telling stories and telling stories in political terms is just way too bloody hard. <laughs> exactly. And like we said earlier on, it just, it changes, you know, in, in seconds as well, you know, the things can move on and that kind of thing, you know, there is one sports story that's coming up that is of interest to both Ireland and Australia in a few weeks time on the 20th of July, the two sides, Ireland and Australia are going to meet in the opening game of the women's world cup. And originally when I said, I wanted to talk to you, that was what I wanted to talk to you about. And now we're after talking about everything but that, but what, how is Australia looking forward to this Women's World Cup? Where is women's soccer in Australia now? Is anybody paying attention? Are they talking about it? Or do they think they're going to win it? What's the lie of the land there at the moment? Okay. It's gone. It's been a journey. Um, <laughs> women's soccer football in Australia has been on a very big growth spiral the last the last few years and you can kind of point to the sort of the, the golden generation if you will and having having a, a, a genuine superstar and sam kerr that has focused attention the same way that the national women's cricket team which is those the, the matildas uh, the, the aussie, aussie women's soccer team and and the and the australian women's cricket team they're the two i would say almost the two most loved teams going out mm. um, more than the Socceroos for the men uh, even though I mean everyone jumps into that and they, they're very glad when they make it to the World Cup um, but those, those teams have been um, pivotal in moving women's sport along and the I, I it, women's football has definitely been behind cricket in terms of visibility. Mm. Um, they've had stuff like uh, the um, the women's big bash, the T20 competition over here has, has been huge for identifying and, and making stars out of people. There hasn't been quite the same element with the, the, uh, the W league, which is the national um, football league over here. Mm. But when you look at the Aussie people who are going to be in this team and in this squad of the people who are there, like um, Ellie Car Carpenter plays in on the continent, St uh, Steph Catley and um, um, Caitlin Ford play for Arsenal. Sam Kerr plays for Chelsea. There, there are, these girls are playing Champions League football and top level football. And so this has changed things a lot over the last few years. Now, I think it, it's going to be a very interesting time for the, the Women's World Cup. It has the potential to explode things in Australia hmm. in terms of football. Um, they haven't hosted the Men's World Cup, and they've, they've, they've tried spectacular failures a couple of times trying to get trying to bid for it. Um, 
but having this and having the world arrive on their doorstep and having 80 odd thousand people in the Olympic Stadium on the 20th to cheer but there will be there will be some supporting Ireland um, not many but there'll be some but to have that level of support it's like it's like the cricket world cup they had a couple of years ago where they got 86,000 people to the MCG for the for the 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 um uh women's T20 final um oh. Australia versus India and that at the, that stage was the and still is I think the biggest crowd to a women's event in Australia yeah. in history the olympic stadium doesn't have the same capacity so I don't think they can top that here but having a a um having a sellout crowd for that opening game and seeing their stars run around and you know all, all these leagues that have happened the last few years have have given girls who love sport in australia something to aim at and this will be something for the girls who love football this is going to be something for the next 10 15 20 years mm. um so you know, the same way they've got the Olympics to look forward to, if there are other sport, uh, if there are sporters and somewhere else, they've got the Brisbane Games to come in twenty thirty two. But this is right here, right now, and is going to give that next generation something to go crazy about. I, I you asked about how it's taking. It's been a quiet, slow burn. Yep. But we had something on the weekend just gone, where they had um, a celebration on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And they had 4,000 football fans walk across the bridge, waving flags of all the 32 nations. They unveiled this 17-metre-long unity jersey that had little pockets from each of the flags of each of the the nations. Um, They had former Matildas walking across, and they had New Zealand, former New Zealand players walking across, and they had... I think that just started to open things up. And I do think as this gets closer, it's going to get pretty wild mm. here. If, if, if certainly if they, if they leverage it the way they should be able to, mm. I think it will be a game changer. And mm. um, obviously uh, when you arrived back there, maybe 30 years or more ago in Australia, there was a, a much smaller Irish community than what exists today in Australia. Do you expect those people to turn out to support the Irish team? Will Australians turn out to support the Australian women's team? Do you expect to see big crowds at the games and not just at the games involving Australia? Because let's be honest, the women's tournaments that I've covered over the years, and I've done it for you know over a decade now, the games that don't involve the host nation can sometimes be a little bit thin in the stands, which I always feel terrible about because you know the men's world cup every game is pretty much sold out because these guys have been pushed since the time they were born do you think that neutral fans or the fans will turn out to watch denmark norway uh, haiti the philippines are playing for the first time as well as the matildas i think there is there's bound to be a drop-off you can't the, the the level of support for the host nation is always well in in excess of whatever goes for everybody else mm. for games that don't involve australia but involve the us that involve sweden that involve um japan these are what you might have seen in in, in recent years be traditional rivals of the of of, of australia and mm. they and it's, and certainly the palms, the English. Mm. When when you know, um, I think games involving them will have a fairly solid 
um, support level. And what you've got to remember is that Australia, in the same way as the States, has so many pockets of national groups Yeah, that there is an existing community for mm. these people. And, and for, for most of these teams, some will be smaller than others, but I think that there will be plenty who will get out to it. I don't know. They'll, they'll be... I mean, they've already sold more than a million tickets for the whole tournament. Mm. That was as of, what it was, it was June 9th or something, um, Infantino said that. I'm sure that's been, they haven't even really revved that into gear properly yet. Yeah. So there will be more. I mean, I, I, think, I think you're going to have, I think you're going to have a lot of reasonably full stadiums. You may have, I think there's three games that have sold out so far. I think there'll be more before the end of it. Mm. Um, so, yes, there will be a drop-off, but no, I don't know that it's going to be as noticeable as perhaps it was for, say, with the Cricket World Cup that was held here a while back. There was, like, you know, Ireland playing England and there was half nothing in the MCG. But yeah. then again, why would you hold at the MCG? Hold it at a smaller ground. I think that's what they're doing here. Mm. You've got four... You've got four venues in New Zealand and four in Australia I think it is or maybe it's more than that but there will be, they will have done their their homework and targeted games at particular stadium stadia mm. um, where you'll get as many p people as you can a bigger proportion of the crowd will be filled for those games yeah so that hopefully we don't have any you know completely empty stadiums for anything I don't think that'll happen Will you be involved in covering the tournament yourself? Um, well, everyone will be to a certain extent, uh, but we have a very small team uh, that has to cover everything. And at the moment, we have uh, we have three guys who are blog who from tomorrow night will be blogging overnight, ball by ball coverage of the Ashes. Mm. That's got that series is going throughout the World Cup, so that's going to be crazy there's the women's ashes as well that we will cover there's the footy that still has to go on uh, and be covered on a, on, a, on a daily and weekly basis um we've got you know the tour de france and wimbledon and everything else so all this normal stuff that we have to d to, to deal with plus the extras and, and we still got the we still got the rugby world cup to come in a couple of months time so yep. it's just when i try and think about the next few months uh, I start to get a bit, a bit hivey, if you know what I mean. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be great, but I think, I think my role will probably be more doing most of the other stuff to free up the people that we have who are going to be going gangbusters at the actual content. Yeah. So it, it'll, it'll be a mix. I'm sure I will be writing a few stories and producing plenty of stories on it, but my focus may be elsewhere just from my role yeah. within the group. It could be worse, Andrew. You could be back in politics, you know, having your dog years there, but like, at least this way you're going to be involved in sport. <laughs> uh, I'm still, yeah, I still haven't years, ruled it. Those, those years are definitely one-to-one. -one. They're not one-to-one. Exactly, yeah, this is the thing, something new every day. I haven't, uh, I do, I actually have an accreditation and I have a visa and everything, but I don't have enough work to get to Australia yet. So uh, if anybody at ABC or anywhere else is listening and they want to send me there in the last minute business class flight, I'm open to that kind of thing. But for now, Andrew, it's been brilliant to catch up and we might actually catch up again during the tournament when the group stages are played and see what the lie of the land is. But for, for now, thanks very much for talking to me. Great to talk to you, Philip.
There you go. That was Andrew McGarry there from Longford to Dublin to all parts of Australia. Uh, his book about the Snowtown murders, which you can uh, find, is called The Snowtown Murders, The Real Story Behind the Bodies in the Barrels Killings. Uh, and I was going to play a little clip from one of the films and that kind of thing and see if I could find some sort of little news report to give you. It. But it's a little bit on the on the sort of grisly side. And look at, you know, not everybody's into that kind of thing. So I decided, well, let's not do that. Let's, if somebody's interested in going reading Andrew's book, go ahead and do it. It is an absolutely fascinating book. And uh, the chap has had an absolutely fascinating career. And it's gas when you think back about people that you went to, to school with and that kind of thing. And, you know, the two of us are elves now, our beards and that kind of thing. And uh, I always sort of thought that he would become a journalist. I don't, don't think I thought that I would, but I always thought that he would certainly become a journalist as well because of, uh, you know, he always loved his moment. He loved all these things like politics and that kind of thing from a very, very young age. He found them fascinating and sports as well. And who knows, lads, I might actually yet get down there to the Women's World Cup. I'd love to get down there. Uh, as I mentioned just before that interview, uh, the Women's World Cup is coming up in Australia. Ireland are qualified for the first time. My beloved friends from Scandinavia, the Norwegians, the Danes and uh, the Swedes are there as well. Uh, if you do happen to be sitting on a huge media empire that you would like to send me, feel free to get in touch. I have an accreditation, I have a visa. All I need is tens of thousands of euros to be able to make it all the way down there because it's extremely expensive to get down there. Listen, another thing, there's actually two things I want you to do, right? One is share the podcast. Uh, we're trying to build the audience as much as possible. Uh, so if you can share the podcast and say, right, you know, share this with your community in Australia, with people you know there, this might be interesting. If people are interested in true crime and there's no town murders and that kind of thing, share it with them as well. And the other is, in the near future, I'm going to be putting out a survey, right? It'll be one of those survey monkey Google Forms things as soon as I find out which one of those things I want to do. And it's going to be about this podcast and the other podcasts that I do because I need your help in working out where the focus area should be, right? So... I'm not going to agree with everybody. I'm not going to do everything that everybody says, but I certainly need a little bit of guidance from you about what you want to hear, about how you would like to support the podcast. Maybe you wouldn't like to support it at all. Maybe you have other ideas around sponsorship or guests or whether it should be famous people or normal people. or Because, you know, we started this on the premise that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad. And personally, I'd rather keep it that way. But if you want to hear from some famous people every now and again, sure, Jesus, I'll go ahead and I'll dig them up, you know. So uh, we can certainly do that as well. But I'll be sending that out hopefully in the next few weeks. And from about August onwards then, <coughs> I'll uh, start to implement some of those things, you know. Because I honestly believe, I think I've said this several times in the podcast before, I do believe that this had value. Now, it doesn't have the kind of value that Ryan Tuberty is going to get for his millions or hundreds of thousands of euros a year, right? But I certainly believe that there's a sustainable way of doing this where you guys can, can keep me... Uh, in the style to which I've become accustomed, which is basically sleeping in a puddle. But uh, no, where you can help out and support the show and that kind of thing, and I can keep bringing them to it because I honestly believe that there is a value to doing what we're doing here, you know. And it might be as well that, you know, there's some places that we haven't thought of or that we haven't covered or that kind of thing, and I'd be very much interested in hearing from uh, your perspective on that. So when the L survey comes out, fill it in, lads. I'll make it as short as possible because I have the attention span of a goldfish myself. So I won't make that difficult on you, if at all possible. And then share it as much as you can. Uh, with other people, you know, other Irish people abroad or other people of Irish heritage abroad as well. And that would make my life an awful lot easier. I would, it'll certainly give me a, a, an old sort of pointer as to what direction I should be going. I shall let ye all go for this week. Remember, if you are one of the extraordinary Irish people living abroad or an extraordinary Irish person or person of Irish heritage living abroad, get in touch, right? I have loads of people for the sister podcast, Irish in Sweden. They're all recorded. I've half the summer ready to go there. Need a few more global heads, especially 
especially people in Asia, especially people in Africa, especially people in South America, and uh, we haven't had half enough people from Canada yet. So if you do know of anybody, or you can think of anybody that you'd like me to talk to, get in touch. You don't have to be able to make an introduction at all. I'm well able to inter introduce myself. So yeah, if you can do those one or two things for me, sure, Jesus, I'd be delighted. And I'll be back again very, very soon with another episode of the Global, Global Gale podcast. Until then, my friends, whether you are in Australia or Antarctica or in Alaska, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. And I'll be back with another episode of the Global Gale podcast very, very soon indeed. Good luck. Thank you.